College game day, and I say every time, Eugene, Oregon. Yes. This is the best crowd. Honestly, it's six in the morning here. Yeah, it's dark. Yeah. It's raining. They don't care. These fans right here, pound for pound, are as good as any college football fans in the country. This program is staged to compete and to win championships. Oregon is going to be in the championship game. Can you believe the magical season this has become? When we watch this film, does our effort beat theirs? Here's Bo Nix. Guns Touchdown, Oregon! Been making deposits. Time to cash a check. Sound at Austin, which is deafening for an Oregon 15-point win. Chip Kelly still does not have a win against his former school. We say farewell. Man, it feels great to be a duck. Welcome to the QB11 Show, presented by Scoop Duck, with Doug, Andrew, and J-Hop. Here are the guys with the latest scoop. Welcome back to the QB11 show presented by Scoop Duck. As always, I'm Doug Scott. I'm joined right now once again by Justin Hopkins, owner and insider and expert of ScoopDuck.com. And QB, of course, will be joining later in the show. Justin, good afternoon. Yep. Happy uh, Taco Tuesday, I guess, to us. And I don't know if you, you might not have even saw uh doug as we're recording this i just posted a couple uh picks for prediction tuesday so that's on the site which uh which we can talk about but uh yeah it's tuesday gotta love tuesdays i did not see your new predictions yet but i will jump over there you know either later while we're recording or or after at least to check that out of course we don't want to we don't want to give away your goods uh on the air for free so if you haven't subscribed to scoop duck get over there and check that out and the predictions are usually uh, pretty accurate. I, I think someone went and measured your prediction rate from last cycle from the 2023 class, and um, I think it was like 80, 85% or whatever or better. So it's pretty solid. Well, and then that's great. I'm really glad that they are accurate, and it's something that I, I really try hard not to, like, move my picks around, right? I try not to pick something and then have to switch later on. Or And, and, and there are occasions that I've had to do that because these are – 16, 17, 18-year-old young men making a huge decision. So I'm glad my accuracy rate is up there. And again, one of the areas I, I try is to is to make one pick on a guy and not have to move it around. But that isn't always the case, and sometimes you have to do that. But uh, yeah, trying to trying to be first and early and trying to be, be right are two difficult things for sure. Well, speaking of um, commitments, I mean – we put out an episode a week ago and the Ducks got three new commitments since that point in time. So there's a lot to talk about there. Um, well, you want to dive in with that first? We can start with uh, quarterback number two of this class. Uh, Ducks pick up a uh, commitment from Michael Van Buren out of Baltimore, Maryland. Um, we talked about him a little bit on the last show and his commitment was coming up, obviously pairing him now with Luke Moga. As uh, the, the top, uh, as two quarterbacks in the same class, Van Buren's a top 150 level kid, top 10, top 12 quarterback in the 2024 recruiting class on the consensus. Um, yeah, kind of talk a little bit about how Dan Lanning and Will Stein were able to to kind of pull off the double quarterback commitment here. 
Yeah, and I know I I did talk about this a little bit last week, so I won't harsh harp on it too much. But I I think they really sold just the fact that you've got Bo Nix at Oregon now, and he's going to be gone. Um, so I think if you're Oregon, you're really starting with a clean slate next year, at least as things stand today. I know fans, you know, maybe think or expect that Oregon might hit the transfer portal this offseason for a quarterback, which I believe that might be on the table. Um, and I believe in Dan Lanning being aggressive and putting the team first instead of hurting individual feelings. So if he feels that, you know, there's a quarterback they can win with on the on the roster, you know, they won't go into the portal if he's not confident that that's the case. Obviously, they'll they'll look into the portal and deal with the uh, the uh, blowout afterwards if there is any. So but I think in terms of that kind of looking at, at it that way, you know, Michael Van Buren, and Luke Moga both look at, hey, look, I know that Ty Thompson's there. I know that Austin Novosad is there, but neither of those guys have started at Oregon. We have the opportunity to come in and compete for that job just the same as those guys do. Um, so I think that's a lot of appeal. And, and I do know that Oregon really sold Luke Moga and Michael Van Buren on, hey, look, you're going to compete against somebody somewhere. OK, it doesn't necessarily mean it's somebody from your class might be the guy after you might be the guy before you. There's competition. So why not come in and compete with somebody uh, in your same class? And I think that really kind of went a long ways. And I, and I do think that Will Stein, I think his offense appeals to a lot of guys. He's a very quarterback savvy offensive coordinator. I know that that is just deep in his blood. Um, something that's very, very important to him. So I, I think that all those things kind of added up for Oregon getting Michael Van Buren in it. And it obviously, last thing here, doesn't hurt the fact that Oregon's recruiting incredibly well at all positions, but they are recruiting well on, on offense. You know, they're, they've got the probably one of the deepest stable of running backs in the country anywhere. Um, you've got a wide receiver room that's really transformed the last two years and is becoming a premier wide receiver room. Uh, I think you've got a good tight end room, maybe not elite, but definitely good enough to win some ball games with um, now and in the future. And the offensive line looks really good. So I think all those things really appealed to Van Buren. Yeah, and obviously joining his his uh, teammate, Ify Obadegu, on the squad. Um, you know, big get for Oregon. They're going to have, regardless of whether it's the the four that we know of, Ty Thompson, Austin Nova said Van Buren and Moga or or three of those and maybe a transfer portal guy. They're going to have four scholarship quarterbacks on the roster for the 2024 season, which will be, you know, a nice change from from where they've been over the last few few years, as well as kind of uh, kind of hard to do in this day and age uh, with quarterbacks. So, you know, kudos to Stein and the staff for for being able to make this happen. And and I think. You know, the 2024 quarterback class, I, I think, and I think a lot of people agree, you know, it's not a very strong class of quarterbacks like, you know, at the top, like the 2023 class certainly was. So I think the strategy of, you know, take two that you like and, and if one of them, if one of them can end up being a starter for you, then, then that's, you know, two for one kind of, you know, two to make one kind of opportunity is, is the way to go in this class. And I, I you know, still not easy to pull off and, and the staff has done it. So good for them. And I agree. You make a great point there, Doug, that I think 2023 had some really top heavy, uber talented quarterbacks in that cycle. And, you know, you had three or four guys, but it did not have the depth, right? There wasn't a lot of really, you know, high end quarterbacks. And in 2024, I think 
you have a lot of good, solid to strong quarterbacks in this recruiting cycle, but very, very few top end guys. And I'd even argue that, you know, Dylan Rayola is a true top end guy, uh, really good player, you know, obviously going to Georgia. So it's, it's not sour grapes or anything. I just think that there's three or four quarterbacks in last year's class that are probably ahead of Dylan Rayola, uh, which isn't an indictment on him. It's just, like you said, it's kind of the difference in the two cycles. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so moving on, about an hour later on Saturday, um, also as expected, the Ducks picked up another commitment from another uh, you know top two hundred level player, defensive lineman, Xdavian. I, I feel like I messed it up again. Uh, Ex- <laughs> Xdavian Sims out of uh, Durant, Oklahoma. He picked the Ducks over Oklahoma and Michigan State. I think we're, we're really the kind of the top three in that recruitment. Um, seemed to be trending Oklahoma for the last month or so of his commitment. And then obviously he came out to Oregon on those back-to-back weeks and it was all ducks after that. And, and he pulled the trigger, uh, pulled the trigger for Dan and Tosh and, and that group and, and Tony, and, and he's going to be a duck and really add to the, the defensive line unit that Oregon is between defensive line, interior and, and edge guys like Oregon is just stacking guys at, at those positions between the 2023 class and the 2024 class. And, and it makes a lot of sense, right? Because those are positions you can't get premium guys out of the portal in. And, you know, the strategy seems to be we're going to take as many guys at those two positions that we can that have a high level of talent and projectable athletic traits. And, you know, enough of them are going to pan out to, to, to do what we need to do going forward. And the ones that don't, you know, don't. And that, I like that strategy. I think it makes a ton of sense at those two positions where you just can't get, you're not going to be able to get, you know, elite guys at those positions out of the portal. I mean, the Ducks did well getting Birch this year, but you know there really isn't a lot of a lot of that that level of player at that position in the portal. So I like Sims. I like what Oregon's doing here at this at these kind of defensive line positions. Yeah, I love your point there because it certainly seems like the the few linemen, and I will say linemen, the, the, the few offensive and defensive linemen that entered the transfer portal, um, you know, basically there was a premium for those guys. They, they were highly recruited, highly sought after, probably signed uh, what I would guess are bigger NIL deals than maybe some of the other position groups. If you need a quarterback out of the transfer portal, odds are you're probably going to be able to find a guy. If you need a wide receiver out of the transfer portal, again, odds are you're probably going to be able to find a guy. There are position groups that, like you said, the transfer portal um, seems to provide with, but offensive and defensive line really isn't one of them. And uh, Zadavian Sims is just a guy that, I, I, I mean, if there's somebody that knows def- – here's the thing, okay? There's two really, really strong – there's more, but there's two really strong defensive-minded head coaches out there, Brent Venables and Dan Lanning. And both those guys were highly recruiting Zadavian Sims, which tells you – you know exactly what you need to know about that player. They see something there that translates to becoming an elite player at his position. So I think it, it's it's great that Oregon was able to get him. What makes it even bigger this, is that you were able to beat out Oklahoma for him because they've done really well recruiting on the defensive side of the ball. Uh, and once again, if that's a guy that Brent Venables likes, it probably is a pretty good sign that that's a really good player on defense. So um, his position, his position, his body type, his his trajectory, his traits aren't something we see in abundance out west. 
So yeah, those are the guys that become paramount for Oregon to get, because as we've said in the past, there's not that many of them out West. And when you're able to go and get those guys and keep the, the top guys out West, you absolutely cripple your competition. You know, Washington, USC, everybody else is having to go down to that next tier two, tier three level to find those guys. And you really widen the gap there. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, third commitment came on Monday, uh, and it's the third wide receiver in this class, and Junior Adams continues to absolutely be scorching on the trail. Um, you know, Dylan Gresham, this, from a rankings perspective, on the consensus is not not as high as the other two commits in this class, Denmark and, and Anderson. But, I mean, you look at that kid and his, his traits, and more importantly, I mean, I, I, you know, I think QB said this in his eval, which you can read over on scoopduck.com, but I mean, the guy had 2,000 yards and 30 touchdowns in one season in high school. Like, you know, discount high school stats, you know, and I usually do, but like, you don't score 30 touchdowns in high school unless you can play, uh, you know, in a single season. So uh, I, I think, you know, you look at him on film and he's he's quick, he's fast, he's a slot guy, he, he's got he's got a lot of... He brings a lot to the table, you know. I know Washington wanted him. We got him over over the the Huskies and and a few other teams as well. And you know, it seems like you know we're still in it for you know several other like I, every time I see like where Oregon sits with like a, a top two hundred level wide receiver, I'm like, how how many can we take? Like we seem to be in the final list for Pelham. We seem to be in the final list for you know Gresham until he committed. Right? And there seems like there's three or four more kind of really, really high-level receivers that Oregon's in in the top list of, and, and it just seems to be like, man, Junior Adams is just, he's an assassin out there. Yeah, he, he, he virtually just almost can't be beat right now, right? I mean, he's just cleaning up and, and getting guys that, you know, we really never thought was possible at Oregon, you know, being able to sign Jurion Dickey, flipping Ashton Cozart from Oklahoma to Oregon, a huge win, both of those last year, getting Gary Bryant, getting Tez Johnson, I mean, just we keep going and going Dylan Gresham's the latest and, and probably like you, you alluded to not the most, you know, not the most highly rated guy uh, in Oregon's class right now, as far as on three is concerned as an individual site, you know, they've got him in the top 250. I think he's around 220 in their overall rankings. Um, some of the other sites have him much lower. I just don't think they've evaluated him all the way just yet. But like you said, like Andrew said, just look at that production, right? I don't even care if he was playing on junior varsity. That type of production, it just can't be ignored. And then you start looking at, at all the other traits. He's fast. He's twitchy. Um, it's not just straight line speed. He's able to move around, uh, you know, pretty solid at catching the football, obviously. But it, it looks fairly effortless for him to catch the football. So all of those things really stack up to being a guy. Um, and again, you know, Oregon – didn't want to wait around and, and see where they stood with like a Pelham or some of the other Jeremiah McClellan or some of these other guys, they decided Dylan Gresham was good enough to get no matter what. So um, I, I do appreciate that this staff seems to have some trust in their evaluations, which we saw in last year's cycle. I guess we'll see if they're really good evaluations or not in the coming year or two, but you know, you flip on the tape with Gresham, he just looks like a dude for sure. Yeah, so you had those three, and that puts Oregon at 14 commits in this class, 11 four-stars, three three-stars, um, you know, number six in the in the team rankings, you know, I think on 
on all the services, or at least on 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 three and and two four seven both. You know, six ranked class, and you think fourteen, they're probably want to be right around that twenty five mark this year from a high school recruit perspective. You know, give or take a, a couple. So there's maybe you know ten twelve more spots to go, and and it feels like all of those are going to go to, or, or, or nearly all of them are going to be really high-level guys, right? I mean, you look at all the guys that Oregon's still in on out there, you know, Brandon Baker, a, a David Stone, uh, you know, some of the other edge players that are in on, some of the DBs, that are, you know, Dakota Fields, um, you know, up and down, and Nate Frazier at running back, right? Like, there's there's dudes that are out there, and, and you know, I mean, it's going to be 20 blue chips in this class, right? It's going to be... Yeah, I mean, it really feels like moving forward, um, you know, more times than not, they're almost going to just be picking which top 150 level player, you know, they want at which position. And I know that won't always be the case, but it, if we're going to go ahead and kind of maybe label Dylan Gresham and, and maybe Zadavian Sims and Trent Ferguson as, as some of the, the guys you're taking a flyer on, quote unquote, um, and the rest are going to be higher ranked than that. I mean, it really speaks well about this class. And like you said, if you're at 14 commits now, and let's just say that, let's say that that's half, right? Okay. We'll just say that that's half, which, you know, 28 is going to be really aggressive for them to sign in this class. But, you know, we do know that landing kind of has that, uh, well, let's get as many of these top flight guys as we can, and we'll figure it out on the back end. Um, That certainly seems like, you know, his philosophy but even if you're saying that 28 seems like a push, you know, to, to get it's it, 28 seems like it's going to be hard to push past that number. And I guess my point is kind of leading up to that. It's going to be interesting to note how on three and 24 seven sports who are the two that most people follow in terms of rankings, you know, they do weight their class rankings differently. You know, on three is a little bit more of your average star rating, you know, in, instead of, you know, pure points and 24 sevens, more of a pure points uh, method, which means if you've got 35 commits, you're going to beat the school that probably only has 20 commits, even though they have, you know, 18, four stars and you only have 10 in your 35 class. So I think with on the three, that kind of neutralizes that numbers a little bit. So on paper, it certainly looks like this is easily going to be Oregon's most talented recruiting class, top to bottom. Obviously, we need to see how the rest of the recruiting cycle fills out, but it certainly feels like it's looking that way. And I got a feeling that when we're all looking at the average star rating uh, of Oregon's commits or signees when that time comes, I think we'll see that this is the highest ranked class that Oregon's ever had in program history. It's certainly looking that way. Yeah, boy, and especially when you look at, you know, the players who aren't committed yet that that have crystal balls to Oregon or that, you know, you know, kind of read the you know projections that you've made to Oregon, maybe on your site or some other experts have made on other sites as well. And, and even just like kind of the reading of the tea leaves a little bit on some of those guys. Right. I mean, we haven't even gotten a linebacker commitment yet, but, but, you know, Oregon either leads or, or co-leads for four, like absolutely insanely you know ranked and and talented linebackers right so you got that you've got the interior aligned guys that are that are out there on the board you've got some more de- you know defensive linemen that, that we've been talking about um you know the running back the receiver i mean it it you know are they going to get all these guys no they're not going to get them all you know nobody does but they're going to get enough of them that 
that the the rest of this class is going to look pretty similar if not even better than what the class looks right now which is a almost a, a 90 you know a 91 you know 91 and a half average almost trending toward a 92 average with a 85 percent blue chip ratio i, I mean it it's it it, it 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 can't be understated you know with the job this staff is doing on the recruiting trail well and and to your point i mean right now sitting here today i have I have made predictions for Oregon for Brandon Baker, Elijah rushing, Elijah rushing, excuse me, uh, Justin Williams, Dylan Williams, uh, and Dakota fields off the top of my head. Those are just the names I can remember. There are others, but those are the names I can remember that are ranked inside the top 100. I'm pretty sure they're all well inside the top 100. A couple of them are five stars. So if Oregon could get like, let's just say, I think that was five names, even if they got four of them, I mean, you're talking about adding tremendous talent to an already, you know, very talented class. There, there will and could be others because we're talking about late May here. And again, I try and make predictions and not change them. So I've made, I've made those Oregon predictions prior to this day. And I'm still sitting on them because I feel like Oregon's more than likely the team to beat for them. So that's pretty amazing to think about. And of course, they're going to add more than just those, you know, five or six guys or whatever I mentioned it's it's really it's really remarkable because last year ending 2023 we thought man Oregon's really kind of surging you know we had the bait and bones thing and we had you know some other three or four some three or four uh five stars Oregon got in the game late on and it felt like it was really late and I think it was late mostly because they really wanted to see what Dan Lanning was about right see the season see how Oregon does if he's for real and Oregon had a good enough season to kind of silence those people that were probably saying he's inexperienced. Don't go play for him because uh, as we all know, negative recruiting is out there. I think by doing that, you know, he was able to get Oregon back in the game for some of those guys that they really weren't heavily considered for. And so now you're kind of seeing with that confidence, a full recruiting cycle taking place guys that they've had on campus last year for games or even last spring and doing it once again, this year, it just, I mean, I mean, if you could see my hands right now, I'm doing the motion where you kind of go from flat to all the way up. You know, it's just, it's crazy to think about what Oregon recruiting is doing this year. Yeah. And as uh, you know, shout out to Josh Pate on late kick, you know, he pointed out this on the other day. I mean, out of the 14 commits that Oregon has 10 different States represented, you know, including several from, you know, the, the, the South and the East coast, you know, Maryland, Texas, California, Pennsylvania, Oklahoma, Washington, Arizona, Missouri, Oregon, California, Arizona, Texas, right? So, I mean, you know, really continuing the trend of recruiting nationally, and we saw that under under Mario Cristobal and team. Uh, we see we and Oregon has to, right? But the 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 way they're doing it, and and I think the difference you see now, like if you look back to, you know, you go back to like the 17, 18, 19 classes, right? And and Oregon was pulling down guys from. Alabama or, or, you know, or or Tennessee or some of those places, but they were like the kind of the, you know, the high three stars or low four stars that, you know, weren't really takes for their local schools. Right. Like, you know, you know, no knock on these guys. Right. I mean, you know, a guy like Jamal Hill, right. He's, he's had a successful career. He's a talented player. Right. But he wasn't a take for Alabama most likely. Right. But he, but he, but he's from that footprint. Right now, I think the, you fast forward to what, what Oregon's doing in 2023, 2024. I mean, they're going out to some of those states and they're getting 
like some of the best players in those states, and they're and they're taking them. They're not taking just the leftovers from you know the the blue blood schools. They're actually going and winning recruiting battles against the blue blood schools for some of these guys. I, yeah, I love that point. Uh, you're totally right, Doug. Because under Mario Cristobal, who did a tremendous job recruiting in Oregon, um, you know, raised the profile of Oregon on the recruiting trail, did so many great things there. Uh, you know, took us to levels we really hadn't ever seen before. And if you think back, most of his biggest wins in that, you know, in those recruiting battles were either get, beating out USC for somebody, beating out Washington for somebody, or the one big one I could think of, which ultimately didn't sign with Oregon, but was beating out Texas and others for like a Kelvin Banks. And who knows if you would have hung on to him or not. But, you know, those were some of the biggest wins. And now it almost seems like an afterthought, like, oh, we're going to go into Texas and beat Texas and Texas A&M out for an Aaron Flowers or, you know, lots of, you know, there's tons of names in there. Or we're going to go, you know, into Tennessee and beat Tennessee out for one of their guys. And, and you know what? They might not beat Ohio State out for Aaron Scott Jr., one of the top quarterbacks in the country, but they're going toe to toe with them. You know, they're going toe to toe with Georgia. Uh, they're beating Alabama for guys, not every time, but there are occasions. So yeah, it's pretty remarkable to think about that. Now beating out USC is almost an afterthought, right? It's really like, eh, USC wanted them, but they weren't really a threat. And now it's, you know, Hey, we're, we're going to have to go take down Texas and, and Oklahoma and, and Alabama for these guys that, you know, you think about the way Mario Cristobal is building a program. Well, this thing, once again, just got ramped up by, you know, 10 times that because it's 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 an unreal amount of talent coming to Oregon in a short amount of time. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Well, let's move on uh, from recruiting a little bit. You know, I know last week, you know, QB and I kind of spent some time talking about off-season winners and losers around the conference. And, and I wanted to give you a chance to maybe weigh in on that a little bit, you know, from your standpoint as well. You know, who maybe pick a winner or two and a loser or two from from kind of what you've seen the programs around this conference do, you know, from December to now. Yeah, I think even if we're, you know, we'll just go ahead and for the sake of argument, include USC and UCLA, which I know, Sometimes yeah, you count them as, yes. So let's count Yeah, yeah, no, I agree. I, I You know, I think that, um, man, I, I'll kind of stick to the big three, which Oregon and Washington and USC right now are probably the most talked about schools. I'm not discounting Utah in any way. I don't want fans, you know, people to think that I don't consider Utah a serious school. I don't think Utah really did a lot to progress from last year to this year. Of course, keeping Cam Rising was big. They had some talent there. Uh, we know that Coach Whittingham's going to have them ready to play, be disciplined, going to have a good football team. But I think you're looking at this right now currently as Oregon, USC, and Washington for, for many of the same reasons. They've all three got really tremendous quarterbacks. They all three will have pretty dynamic offenses that you're going to have to figure out. 
I think if you're taking that and you probably say, hey, look, even if USC's offense is better than Oregon's, it, how much better is it? You know what I mean? Is it 10% better or 60% better? I'm more inclined to say 10% better. And so you flip that around and you look at defense and I think you look at, at where, okay, what's the, what's the difference there? And I think Oregon is going to be so much better on defense than both of those schools. I think that that's where the difference really resides. And so if I'm kind of giving a winner, I think Oregon did a great job shoring up a lot of positions that needed the help. Okay. Now, whether those guys contribute, whether they're the dudes that we think they are, you know, going out and getting the offensive linemen they did, getting Justin Jacobs, getting the safeties they did, Kyrie Jackson, uh, you know, Treshawn Holden on offense at wide receiver, lots and lots of great additions for Oregon. I do think USC did a pretty good job getting Barry Alexander and some of the additions that they got through the transfer portal. They were active in the secondary as as well. So I think they probably did the second best job. They still have a lot of room to improve on defense, in my opinion, but I do think they took some steps there through the transfer portal. Washington's the one that really sticks out to me because outside of of keeping that uh, trio of offensive firepower that they have in Phoenix and the two receivers, those guys are really good, really good. And, you know, they do have Braylon Trice and some guys on defense that are pretty good players too, but there are a lot of holes on Washington. And I, I think it speaks volumes, if you will, that just recently here, you know, we saw Darren Barkins leave Oregon and go to Washington. And that's a cornerback. He's really fast. He could end up being a great player. I'm not here to, to pick on Darren Barkins. But if you rewind to five years ago where Washington was taking, you know, Oregon's secondary, uh, you know, seconds and thirds or whatever you want to call it, that's quite a change. I mean, just if you think, don't even name names. If you just think about that one part alone, that's quite a change. So, you know, that's kind of been my take there. I think Dillingham did a really good job at Arizona State. I don't know that Oregon fans want to hear that, but he was very active in the portal. Again, you're at a program that's not going to attract um, the elite five stars and four stars just yet. You've got to go get five guys that are going to fit your program and help you start winning games. And then once you start winning games, you're able to go get, you know, bigger names. I think Dillingham did a really good job um, building and starting to turn that program around. You know, Oregon State going out and getting DJU. I, I mean, I think that's a great addition for there. I think Jonathan Smith's one of the best offensive minds in the country. Clearly, he does a tremendous job with quarterbacks. You know, DJU is not one of the best quarterbacks out there, but he's probably going to find himself in a situation that sets him up for success. And I think those two things are important um, and relate. So that's just kind of the, the way I see the state of the Pac-12. Uh, of course, I'm being biased. I do think Oregon did the best job, but it wasn't just the sheer numbers that they took through the transfer portal. It was the guys that they took, the quality, and the fact that they fit spots that Oregon needed help. They didn't just go get four receivers because they could go get the best four receivers in the transfer portal. Because we know if Dan Lanning said, Junior Adams, go get the top four receivers that hit the transfer portal, he could have probably done it. But, you know, they picked a couple of guys that fit what they needed and then kept those numbers for the other positions. So, um, I guess that's kind of my take on the conference. If we're going to talk about Colorado at all, uh, I, I mean, yeah, that's the wild card, right? Like, yeah, it is literally like the great experiment. It is the great experiment in the transfer portal area. He kicked out so many players or so many players left, whatever you want to call it. 
And I do think that as bad as Colorado was, I could see a pretty good portion of that roster needed to be turned over. But I I, I kind of think that he got a little overzealous with it there. And one thing that really sticks out to me is you had transfers that came in already transfer out. That's a red flag. Like, I mean, if it was one guy, you know, you could probably just say, yeah, you know, it's it was that guy. He's a transfer. You know, that's just his deal. But it was multiple guys. And so that to me kind of really sticks out. I'm not a huge fan of a lot of the guys he brought in. I think he did bring in some good players. But again, they had so far to go that uh, how do you how do you rate a successful season for the Buffaloes? Is it three wins? Is it four wins? Or are you are you expecting six wins? Because they're not going to get to six wins. That's the um, thing that kind of blows my mind with Colorado. Sorry to jump in on you here. Uh, is I think the the fan base has created some wildly unrealistic expectations. I mean, you go you go read their boards or you know listen. I mean, they're I mean they're anywhere for like. It seems to be that there's a few people that think oh four or five is a good season, uh, which I think is a realistic take. And if you look at the Vegas over unders, like they're three and a half pretty much everywhere. The analytics models are all around three, three and a half, right? Like, but these fans are like. If we don't win at least seven, like they, they don't even think that's possible. Like they think seven's like the floor, and, and I'm I'm just like what? <laughs> I I don't know what. Like maybe you've been checked out of college football for a while while your team's been irrelevant, but like you you know, like I mean, did did Dion bring in a few good players? Absolutely, he didn't bring in fifty. Yeah, you know, yeah, you, you don't yeah. win with three name guys. And by the way, those guys are were great at at the FCS level. I mean, they're stepping up, and I'm not saying they can't do it, but you have to prove it, right? I mean, stepping up as a quarterback from the FCS level to high level Power Five football, like that's a jump for a quarterback. I mean, you're you're the DBs you're going to be throwing against are a lot better athletes than what you faced at the FCS level, right? I mean, you're, you know, just everyone's bigger, faster, stronger, more talented, right? And so, and the same thing with, like, even a guy like Travis Hunter. Yeah, he was the number one recruit in his class, and I'm not knocking his talent, but he spent the last year playing against dudes who were number 10,000 or 2,000 or 1,500 in the class, right? I, I You know, he didn't play against, you know, he's got to go out there and guard Troy Franklin and Rome, Roman Dunze and Jalen McMillan and, and go up and down, you know, the USC's roster of wide receivers, right? Like, is he going to win some reps? Yeah, he's also going to lose some. Yeah, I mean, that's basically a, putting a varsity player on JV last year is what you did. And the big question is, is outside, even if even if you get what you expect out of those big-name transfers, like, what do you got on the on the defensive line? What do you got on the offensive line? Like, what do you got at edge? What do you got, like, I mean, what's your depth look like? I mean, it, it seemed like outside of the big name guys, like, I get it. Okay, you're going to, you're going to, what, they had, they're, they're, everybody who caught a pass for them last year didn't return, right? And you're telling <laughs> me that, like, all your new pass catchers are better players? Like, I don't buy it. Like, it, it feels like, okay, at the top of the roster, great, you brought in better talent. But it feels like at the rest of the turnover was more like, we just want to flush these guys out of the system. We don't even care if the new people we bring in are better players or not. Yeah, no, you're right. No, you're really, you're right. And even if, you know, let's say he goes and hits the transfer portal and brings in 30 guys, 
even if you bring in 30 guys, even if you bring in 40 guys, that's an astronomical number, right? I mean, that's, let's say he brings in 40 transfers. There's no way, even with 40 guys that you've built the depth that you need, that you've built the depth that you need to win games, you know, over the season, you might be okay and healthy entering the season. Those guys are going to get tired, you know, midway through the season, end of the season, there's just not the depth there to compete at that level. And I, I guess I hadn't really paid attention that the fans thought that, you know, six or seven wins was, was the floor there because that's just, that's again, one of the most important things you can do uh, in college football is keeping your expectations realistic. And, and I've said that about recruiting and I've said that about the season, you know, I, I didn't know that the line was at three and a half, but my, I thought before you even said that, you know, over under at four, does, does Colorado win more than four games? I think that's a fair number. That's a re- that that's a fair number. And we both know right now with those expectations, if they only win four games, the, the, the fans are going to come out with pitchforks. They're going to be, they're going to be pissed. They're going to call them a fraud. They're going to, you know, say that it was phony and that's going to be a long-term problem for him recruiting and, and a very long. A lot of that false expectation is on him. Like he's come in and that's his, that's his stick, right? That's his, his, yep. you know, his angle, right? So he's not the one sitting there going like, Hey, you know, this is going to take some time. We got to, you know, he's in there saying like, I'm bringing Louie. We're going to turn this thing around, you know, and, and I get it from a, from it's from an off field perspective. It's been a home run, right? Like, I mean, they're, they're going to get a bunch of national TV games early in the season, or, you know, they're going to be on all the all the shows. I mean, all the hype, all of that's working. And, and he's obviously going to recruit. He's recruiting as well as anyone in the Pac-12 not named Oregon, right? So, but that the recruiting is for down the road, right? For this season, like he's built some very unrealistic expectations with his, his fan base. And yeah, I, I think it'll be interesting to see, you know, what, what happens. And he's got... You know his first two games are TCU and Nebraska, so it's not like you, you're got you're lining up a bunch of cream puffs out of the conference to pad that win total. Yeah, and then your your fourth game is on the road at Oregon in Eugene. Yeah, and then your fifth game uh, is uh, USC. So, yeah, yeah, exactly. Welcome, I was looking at that. Welcome to Power Five football, <laughs> Deion Sanders. Right. So let's say even if you win one out of your first five games, okay, anything more than that is pure pure butter. That means you've got to go your next you know six seven games or whatever, and you've got to win four or five of them you've got to go you know five and two or whatever the number is i'm yeah i, I know i'm five, i know i'd be five and two to make a bowl he'd have to finish five and two to make a bowl and i just i don't i don't yeah i don't even see that as possible to be honest like um i mean i guess anything is possible but like you look at who those wins would have to come against and i just i don't see it i i remember and i know i've said this before but so some people remember it but i remember that you know, Mark Helfrich's last year towards the end, you know, after being fired and everything. And, you know, one of the things he'd mentioned was he kind of felt like him and just people close to him didn't really manage the expectations the right way, because as a coach, you kind of know, right. You know, what kind of team you have, you know, if you've got a great team, a good team, you know, if you've got holes here, if you're, you know, if people figure out where you're weak, you kind of know. And, he had to have known because he did say we didn't really manage expectations. Everybody expected us to repeat for a national championship, you know, win 10 games, whatever. We didn't have that team. Now, you know, Helbridge made a lot of mistakes. So I'm not like it was the expectations that got him fired, but same thing as Deion Sanders. If you go out there and you're promoting six or seven wins and you fall well short of that, well, 
the repercussions are going to be pretty severe because as you and I both know, uh, college football is very unforgiving. Okay. You guys are getting a good salary. Now the expectations are as high as they've ever been. So along with all that money that you're getting up for week to week on a paycheck, you better, you better meet your expectations. And when you don't, there's some pretty severe repercussions for that. And he's probably going to face that. Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. Well said. Uh, QB, welcome into the show. Good to have you. Well, hello there, gentlemen. Good afternoon. Good we, afternoon. Uh, we, we've covered the, the new commits, and, and, and J-Hop uh, was kind of giving his take on the winners and losers uh, from the offseason from the Pac-12, and I think we were about to move into a, a good state of uh, listener questions here, QB, but if you want to uh, touch on either of the three new commits before we jump into that, like I'm sure our listeners would love to hear your quick take. Okay, yeah, I'll go rapid-fire through them real quick. Uh Michael Van Buren, really excited about that one. Quarterback pickup. Um, I think he's like the perfect complement to Luke Moga in the sense that he's more of a refined, like I think that the floor there is a lot higher. Um, I'm not sure that the ceiling's as high, but the floor is really good. And I think that he, um, coming from St. Francis and Baltimore and playing a high level of competition, like there's a little bit less projection that needs to be done there. He's really mechanically sound. He's really accurate. Uh, he's a good athlete. Like, He's not a 10-4 guy like Moga is, but he's a, he's a good athlete. He's certainly twitchy and can make guys miss and run. Um, I think that like he could be a very good player at this level. Like I don't think that you're um, taking like a significantly less talented player with your with the other quarterback. And so, uh, but I think that he's also going to give you more stability. Whereas Moga is like he's either going to supernova into a sun or a black hole. Um, and so it's just like, is he going to be really good or really bad? It's hard to say. And so those two complement each other really nicely. Uh, Dylan Gresham at receiver can play inside out, but I think ultimately he's going to be really good in the slot. Kind of reminds me of Elijah Moore from Ole Miss a couple of years back. who plays for the jets. Oh, well, he did play for the jets at one point. I don't know if he's still there. Um, really twitchy, like equal parts athletic, both post and pre-catch as a route runner. Um, and then in space with the ball in his hands. Um, yeah. Really just, overall insane athletic body control can make cuts at speed as really good spatial awareness and instincts, both as a route runner. And then as a, as a, uh, a ball carrier post catch, um, I think he's a guy that adds obviously a, ver- a lot of verticality to the offense, unbelievably productive, like most productive receiver in all of high school football last year, uh, 90 catches, 2000 plus yards, 31 touchdowns, like absolutely insane production not a big fan of production in the evaluation process, but like when you have a 20 minute huddle, it makes it a lot easier to get a good feel for what you are. Um, and I think that he's going to be quite the player and then Zadavian Sims. And uh, I think that athleticism for defensive linemen can be measured a couple different ways. Some, a lot of people just assume like Twitch, like quickness, short area burst. And they think like Aaron Donald, they think players like that. And sometimes it's less about uh, Twitch and short area burst. And it's more about flexibility and mobility and fluidity. And I think that's where, uh, Zadavian Sims really shines. I think he's going to be a player that plays very easily around 300 pounds. Um, and I think that he's going to give you um, a really, really solid contributor on the interior. He's got good length, 
He's really well proportioned. He doesn't carry any bad weight. And so I think that his bend is going to allow him to anchor and really play well in between the tackles. I think he's like an A and B gap defender, possibly if he's if he has a little bit better length than I anticipate play out in the C gap is like a four I. And I think he's going to really stack and shed blocks while be able to play up and down the line of scrimmage because of his fluidity um, and be like a a very solid contributor on the defensive line. And if he can develop a little bit more Twitch, I think he can be a plus player as a, as a pass rusher because he's certainly going to have the bend length and flexibility to be a mismatch against guards. All right. You covered that uh, rapid fire. Like you said, um, We've got a, a good bunch of listener questions. Uh, this time we, we put it out on Scoop Duck for our, the ScoopDuck.com members over there to get kind of preference in this in this edition. So I, I thought maybe we'll just run through these and um, I'll just call on, on one of you uh, for each of these questions. And then if the second person has something to add, we, we'll do that. And then same thing with the third. But we don't necessarily all need to, to answer every question and say this, essentially the same thing, if that makes sense. Um, so I'm gonna throw this first one to you, QB. Uh, Dat eight or sorry, Dat six says, uh, really big fan of Dalen Austin coming in as a prospect coming out of high school. How would he rank compared to a few other big cornerback fish we landed recently, like Lenore Graham, right? I'll mention Florence as well. But um, you know, kind of where do you you know forget the rankings, rankings like just from from an evaluation standpoint, where do you see him yeah. compared to those? I like I like Galen Austin as much or more than everybody. I think him and Florence are the two best that we've taken recently, athletically. Like like in terms of like they're both they're both really long corners with good like good size too. Like they're not just like like completely linearly built like wiry guys, but they have good like projectable size. Um, they've got they've got the requisite athleticism. Like you're not compromising twitch and speed and fluidity for it to get that height and length that you're getting with those guys. Uh, and so I think that they have the highest ceilings of really any of the corners that we've had recently, more so than Lenora, more so than Graham, uh, more so than Dante Manning or any of those guys, because I think that they're the most fluid movers, especially unique to their frame that we've had. So uh, I agree. I love Dalen Austin. I think Dalen Austin was our best cornerback prospect in last year's class. Um, and I don't know that it's really all that close. And then um, I thought that floor, I thought the same thing about Florence the year before. And so I think that those two guys are the two best in probably the last decade. Hop, you got anything to add there? I uh, totally agree. And I know that Lenore's in the league and playing in the league, but I think that's because he worked his ass off uh, to get there. I think coming in just out of high school, uh, Dalen Austin right now today has a, is a higher ceiling at the same point in time. And I, I agree. He's, he's, he certainly looks like he's going to guy that be a guy that we'll see uh, out in the rotation at the very least this season. Yeah. And that's, what's kind of like, I actually agree with you. And I know it's not particularly rational to think that because there's a lot of guys that have played a lot of snaps in the rotation. Like you have Manning, you have Kyrie Jackson, you have Florence, you have uh Triquiz bridges. And now you're adding Nico Reed. And I still think that Dylan Austin is good enough to crack the rotation. So I'm really interested to see how that plays out this fall. All right, Hop, I'll start with you on this one. Uh, Beauregard asks, which freshmen do you think burn their red shirts this season? Who from that group is in the two deep by the start of conference play? Uh, It's going to be tough for me to do that sitting here without the list in front of me. So, of course, Dalen Austin's one that we just mentioned. Of course, I'll just kind of go with what I can think of. Um, I think Kenyon Sadiq's going to be required to play. 
um, more than likely burning his red shirt as well, meaning he plays more than four games. Um, I don't know uh, offensive line wise that you've really got much in there that, that would be the case. Um, linebacker, you didn't really sign anybody. Uh, I mean, Mixon's going to be fine. I think he's kind of a project guy. So I doubt it's this season before you see him. Um, I, I just don't know that it's going to be a ton. Um, yeah, I'm trying. I mean, Jurion Dickey's probably not a guy that, that red shirts this year. Uh, how, how many snaps he sees, I don't know. He's getting an awful late start, um, you know, coming in this, this, uh, you know, this summer, which isn't the end all there. And then, of course, you know, the big part of the group that they signed was the defensive line. And I'll be interested to see kind of how that shakes out. Is Terrence Green the guy? Is 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 Porter the guy? I think Johnny Bowens is a guy that we'll probably see on the field um, a lot more and more than likely doesn't redshirt this year just because you're naturally getting dinged up there on the defensive line. You're going to need guys. Surely there's, um, you know, some more experienced starters ahead of them, but they like to rotate and those guys get dinged up fairly often. So um, I think that's probably another group. Uh, the Blake purchase might be tough to do. I think he's going to have to get a little bit bigger. So I'm not sure that that's the case, but I totally love his upside in the next two or three years. That's just off the top of my head without going through the commit list. Andrew. Uh, yeah, so I I I think uh, I think an edge. I, it's hard to say which one, right? I, or maybe multiple, oh, right? Between, I was muted. Sorry. Oh, that's all right. Between <laughs> purchase and uh, Mateo and and Tuiati, I think what yeah, at least one of those guys is going to be in the rotation, if not two. I think that I think that all three of Mateo, purchase, and Tuiati play this year. Um, and I think that they all don't redshirt. I don't think that Sadiq redshirts. I don't think that Dickey redshirts. I don't think that one of Amari Washington and Johnny Bowens redshirts. I don't think Cole Martin redshirts. I don't think Dylan Austin redshirts. Um, and that's kind of where it ends for me. I think that that's the group that plays. I, one, just kind of a, a higher level thing. And I know I've said this on Twitter and other places a lot, but just about redshirting in general is like, it, to me, it's not like it's not even a goal. <laughs> like, there's no value in redshirting uh, outside of maybe off, you know offensive linemen and maybe some defensive linemen or you know specific scenarios, right? Like, if you have a guy who projects to be a dude, he's not going to be here for five years anyway, right? So, like, what's the value in redshirting a guy that's going to leave with two years of eligibility or one year of eligibility left anyway? It's almost more yeah. useful in the case of like a guy getting injured early in the season. Yeah, right. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I love that point, Doug. And, and along with the transfer portal, right? Because let's be real. If you don't play some of these guys, they leave. Right. And so I'm not saying that has to factor in to your decisions, but I do think that it's in the back of your mind as well. Well, I yeah, just think it, that because it, of the yeah. way that roster management is handled now, you don't like, like you're not, you're not projecting five years out unless it's again, like rare occasions on the offensive line where maybe like, again, like the closer to the line of scrimmage you play, the more likely it is that you're going to be a longer term physical projection. Um, and so like, yeah, like a guy like Pomea or a guy like Janoris Wilson, like, yeah, you like, if you have offensive linemen, like they're not going to play this year, like redshirt them all. There's no, there's no downside to redshirting guys, but I also think that you're going to look to give them every opportunity to get on the field and get reps possible for that development as well. Cause that's important reps. Um, and so I think that we're going to see every single one of these kids play this year, but 
I think that the guys that I mentioned are guys that I actually think like play like substantive roles. Um, and so I think that they won't play more than four games and like there will be like actual thought put in or like there will be no thought of those guys redshirting. Um, and again, maybe it's Porter and not purchase. I mean, you're, you're talking about fallen early edge players, but there's, there's a, there's room for someone to emerge on the edge and just based on the numbers they took, if they want to get class separation, that would make sense to me to redshirt some and not others. And so, uh, I'm, I'm just picking the guys that I think are physically the most likely to pop um, and play significant roles as true freshmen. Yeah, and you also want to get them reps so they're ready to start or or play so get more significant roles in in 2024, right? Like, there's no value in saying, "Oh, uh, Roderick Pleasant, you've played your four games. We're going to sit you on the bench the rest of the year so we can play a fifth year senior instead." Like, there's no value in that. Yeah, no, I, I, agree. I agree with you. Yeah. Like, well, like you guys have said, it, it used to be a four or five year thing and now it's more of a three or four year thing. And that's just the, the nature of. Sorry, I don't mean to interrupt. I'm just excited. No, no, it is. Yeah. I mean, we saw that with Kayvon Thibodeau kind of being one of the first ones to really kind of make that transition. Either you're so good that redshirting you doesn't make sense because you're going to be gone in three years because you're going pro or you're a guy that's going to like, or like the development curve is this, like you're either ready to play and contribute in two years, or we're going to recruit over the top of you and you're going to leave. So there's, there's like, there's less incentive than ever to really like concern yourselves with red shirts because either way, either because they're good or because they're not good, they're going to be gone in three years. You know, this actually segues into another question. So I'm just going to ask, you know, I'm going to ask the question um, that that the listener put in because it it, it really we're we're already answering it. Um, uh, it. So it's official says on the heels of the Barkins transfer to UW, I was wondering how modern recruiting has changed the perception of taking a kid to develop for a few years on the bench and then play one or maybe two years as an upperclassman in the state in which you want to fill your 85 man roster with the best possible talent composition utilizing recruiting in the portal is there still room on a team to have a guy be a lunch pail gym rat with the assumption he may only turn into a full-time starter by year three or four if you're at washington then yes but if you're if you're a guy that's not ready to play in a substantial role at oregon by year three then there's going to be more talented players that are going to pop earlier coming in that are just going to be better than you and take those reps like this is Again, with whether it's through the portal, whether it's high school prep recruiting, and I know that that is where the staff and Dan Lanning want to build this roster is through high school because, like, again, as for, for every Christian Gonzalez who's like a, 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 a top three-round pick that comes from the portal, most of those guys are going to g- graduate from the same school they committed to out of high school. And so you're really looking to build that organic talent pool through high school recruiting that's where you're going to get the highest majority of your really talented players. And so like no disrespect to a player like Barkins, but like if you're not that guy at the end of year two, you're certainly not going to be that guy at the end of year four, because we're going to bring in 10 unbelievably talented corners over those four years that are, are going to have higher ceilings and higher floors than you. And to, and just case in point to what we were talking about earlier, Darren Barkins leaves in part because he knows Dale and Austin and some of these other guys are going to come in and beat him out. I mean, that's just more than likely a reality at this he's point. The seventh, he's the seventh corner before Austin and Pleasant get on campus, right? Like you're the seventh corner before those guys arrive. 
you're not like like this is not you're not playing here. So if you want to play, there's other places that like here's the good thing. Like if you're not good enough to play at Oregon, you're still getting a free education and playing college football somewhere else. Yeah. And to your point earlier, recruiting at the high school prep level is a more sustainable model. I have no problem bringing in some transfers and fixing some holes and doing that. But like you said, the bulk of your roster really probably needs to come through recruiting. And that seems to be what Dan Lanning wants to do at Oregon. And that's what Kirby Smart does at Georgia and Nick Saban at Alabama. And what Ryan Day is doing at Ohio State. And like all, and again, any school that's actually like actually can win a national title. And that is the goal of this program. It's the only model. It's, it's the, the only, only model, model that works. Like, you're you not can, you especially can. at premium positions, right? Like offensive tackle, defensive line, edge, corner. Like there's so few premium players at those positions available in the portal every year, and they're and they're and when when they do hit, like every blue blood in the country is is offering them. You know, everyone hits those guys. You got to right. develop that in house, and like again, you can get a serviceable player. You can even get a good player. You can get lucky. You can get a Christian Gonzalez. You can get an Johnny Cornelius, but that is not like. You can't count on that, right? And so that's not that is not like that is not a sustainable model. Again, if you're looking to have that absolute top flight roster. Like again, I'm not even trying to say say that to like downplay our some of the the transfers that we acquired in the portal. They were better than what we had, but they're not better than what we're gonna have in two to three years. Right. How many how many of Oregon's transfers last year turned into high round draft picks and, and just Christian Gonzalez, Bo Nix will probably do that, but you know, that's two out of like 20 guys. And so that's to your point, you want to, you want to, you want to really build through recruiting, but fill some holes through the transfer. Portal. And that's with Oregon having access to the highest quality of transfer, right? Like, like there, there's like, again, there's a, there's a handful of guys on a yearly basis that transfer that will be like top three, like day one or day two picks. But like Oregon is still getting the absolute highest quality, like above repl- replacement level transfer available, and they're they're still going to get a higher quality talent through prep recruiting than they'll get through the portal over the longer run. Like the like this defensive line class of guys that we brought in last year and the in the group that's being recruited right now, like there are going to be pl- there are going to be multiple players that get drafted a lot higher than Jordan Riley did, and he was one of the best interior defensive linemen that was in the portal last year. All right. I think we've uh, beaten this one to death, and, and I think it's plain. It should be plain for all to see. I, I don't know why this is even a debated topic among some people out there. Well, I think it's important to articulate, though. It is important to articulate, but it's also quite self-evident by looking at the teams that actually compete for national titles and how they manage their rosters, and it's it's pretty glaring. Well, one of the things I've one of the things I've learned on that point, one of the things I've learned from doing this for a long time is not only is it, you know, for me to be here to provide insight and recruiting, it's for people to educate, you know, readers and fans on, you know, what we just did, like making up your roster composition, why you want to recruit this way or that way. So super valuable things. I understand why why we spent time on it. And like you said, We've probably exhausted it at this point, but it it is a valuable tool for people to kind of be reminded of of why you know you're doing things a certain way. Just, anyways, I want to throw that out there. Well, also, like, not everyone follows it as closely as we do, and, and like it, it is quite the departure from what like this looked like ten years ago. And like a lot of these people, and like I, I say these people, like I don't mean that disparagingly, but a lot of the people who like are on the board or on Twitter or anywhere, like they follow the sport, 
but they don't have like that maniacal, like ridiculous over the top, like passion for it that we do. And so like being able to explain like the differences and trends and changes that come with these, these massive rule changes and these like shifts and, and the way that things are done on a national level. Like, I like, I don't know. I don't think we could ever spend too much time talking about it because it's, it's a, it's a good opportunity to like express our opinions on it. And I don't, it doesn't mean our opinions are right. I mean, I, I believe they are, but that's for people to decide. I think the other thing to, to remember too, is particularly on the West coast, this is, this is a fairly recent, um, you know, uh, way of managing a roster that really only, I mean, Oregon was really the first West coast school to, to really start trending in this direction. The USC uh, is the know, only other one that does and, it. And USC is the only other one that really is, is, is doing it now. Well, maybe, maybe Dion will, you know, once he kind of gets his guys in there and, and gets in place, but I mean, that's it. Right. I mean, everyone else in the pack, you know, really kind of follows uh, the, you know, in my opinion, outdated model, but certainly the more the more traditional model. Guys, I'm I'm fired up today. I'm jacked to the tits. You are. Yeah, I love it. I love the passion. I love the passion. Let's see uh, if you got some passion for this next uh, question. I- I'm going to take the first stab at this one and then let you jump in. Um, Minneapolis Duck asks about a way too early look at the 2024 transfer transfer portal quarterbacks. Obviously, we don't know who's going to be in the transfer portal yet in, in the 2024 offseason. But, you know, just kind of talking about it at a high level, I kind of see you really have three three models of what that might look like, right? And one is the Bo Nix model, right? You kind of got this journeyman guy. He's played a lot of snaps. He's a starter somewhere. Maybe due to a variety of reasons, wasn't able to, to reach the potential that he maybe had at, at his existing school and was looking for a new, a new opportunity. I, I think the second model is, you know, like a, a true, like this guy is a superstar quarterback. He's killing Justin it. Justin Fields. <laughs> well, he hadn't done that yet before he transferred. But, but like, it was obvious to everybody and their brother that that was who he was. Right. I was thinking more about a guy like who actually like, I, what was it? Was it Drake May that everyone was trying to recruit this offseason? Yeah, or like a Caleb Williams yeah. or someone yeah. like that. Yeah, a guy who's like, yeah, everyone knows this guy's a stud, and he, but he's playing at a – Justin Fields is not the example I'm thinking of, right? Everyone knows this guy's a stud, but he's playing at a lower level of the Power 5 and or, or even in the G5, and he wants to move up to compete at, at the national level, and, and that's a guy that might be available. And then I think the third one is more of like – guys who get beat out and haven't really played and you're taking a flyer on them being, being good. Yeah. Like a Malik Murphy, possibly cough, cough. Any, any more thoughts on this? I one? mean, I think that if you're Oregon, you take the best quarterback you can possibly get and you don't worry about the ramifications because they're going to be what they're going to be, but you need to like, you owe it to the rest of this roster, which is going to be absolutely insane to have the best possible quarterback. Yeah, I, I know. I, I'll just say, I mean, I said it earlier, uh, same thing. Uh, Dan Lanning's n- not afraid to hurt a couple feelings. He, he's going to, you know, make sure that Oregon, uh, you know, is in a great position at the quarterback to, to compete. If he's got that on the roster, great. And if he's not certain he doesn't, he's going to go and get a transfer portal guy. I have no doubt about that, but uh, we just really won't know uh, if he will or won't do that until probably the end of the season. And, right. and maybe, and maybe by then Dante Moore will already be in the transfer portal. I'm pretty sure that's what they're all hoping for. Yeah, we'll get him back where he belongs. 
<laughs> um, Kay Gamblin asks, we've heard a lot about bringing in different body types to better align with the new defense, but what about the physical, but what are the physical characteristics or specific skill sets that we look for on the offensive side of the ball at each position in order to align with Stein's offense or along the O line? I mean, I think it's, this one is like kind of ambiguous in the sense that like, you're just, you're looking for the, the best athlete, the best large athletes that are out there. Like a, it sounds like oversimplification, but you're looking for guys with great bend, with great frames that can add the right requisite weight, great length, um, the ability, like the strength in the lower body to anchor and to, to generate push, but also the like body control and athleticism to get out on the edge and fit on second level defenders and get in reach guys. And like, there's, it's like, you're just looking for big, powerful, athletic young men. And that's really like kind of what it is. Yeah, and I, I just almost wonder if some of the question is, are they looking more for like what Chip Kelly had, which was the 260-pound guys that they would put 15 pounds on, 20 pounds on, and 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 they were, you know, able to run down the field. You know, we, we haven't seen Oregon recruit that way for a long time. It's been guys, you know, at or near that 300-pound mark. But like you said, not just big, you know, piles of body guys that can move, can run, can still bend and do all those things. You know, Alik Terry's just getting started, but he, he certainly doesn't. I, I wouldn't say that he certainly has a type, right? He doesn't have, oh, I want all 330-pound-plus guys or I, I want all 275-pound-plus guys. He seems to have a pretty good combination of all those things in who he's recruiting. Yeah, I mean, like, I don't think that you – I don't think that, like – Frankly, I don't think Clem had a type. I don't think Terry's got a type. I don't think Mario had a type. I mean, Mario would would definitely lean towards the 400-pound Tabagoo over over a guy who's 250. Um, but like at the end of the day, like your Oregon's in a place right now with the with the type of athlete and the quality of recruiting and the type of prospect they have access to, where every kid is evaluated individually, and it's like we're just trying to get the five to six best guys a year we can. Um, and we're gonna we're gonna get those guys on campus. We're gonna develop them physically, and we're gonna figure out who the best five are that give us the best chance to win on Saturday. So, like, I don't I don't think that like the Steve Greatwood had a type, and I think it was because he didn't leverage the brand and Oregon on the recruiting trail the way that it could be leveraged, um, and so he felt like he had to pick and then develop the the uh, the other skill set. Whereas I think that now looking at the types of athletes in the offensive line, guys like Brandon Baker, um, Bennett Warren, guys like Shaq, I mean, Shaq McCroy, um, Fox Crater. Like you just take the best athletes and figure it out later. All right, let's um, move on. Desert Duck, another roster-related question. We're getting a lot of good ones here today. As things stand today, which position groups do you feel are the closest to championship level and which are the most in need of improvement from a talent standpoint? Uh, I actually think the um, the edge room is the furthest and that doesn't mean that there's not good players in that room but they're young and you have Jordan Birch as an outlier on the upper end but like you don't have like two to three bona fides there like you'd like to have and I think like in terms of the closest I think I'm going to be honest with you, like championship level. I think that Oregon is very, very good across the board this year. I don't think Oregon is championship level anywhere. 
Yeah, I, I'd say that's pretty good. I agree with the edge because, like you said, I think that had so much work to do when they got here that, you know, you hit the transfer portal for a couple. You were able to recruit a couple in the prep level this year, but you still took some edge guys through the transfer portal. So that kind of tells you what you need to know about that room. And we know that Lanning's going to prioritize that position. I don't know that I would say it's championship level, but very close to championship levels, probably the running back room at Oregon. Uh, that's probably the best room they have. And I would say wide receiver certainly appears to be getting close to there. Yeah. But like, to me, like championship level, like when I think of championship level room, I'm thinking like Oregon in 2014 with Buckner and Armstead both on the end, like you need to have multiple day one or day two picks at a position. And I don't know, like Oregon might have day one and day two picks on this roster, but they're younger and they're not proven yet. And they're undeveloped. Um, and or they've got like one guy like a Troy Franklin at receiver, and then they've got a lot of other solid guys who could who could potentially be draftable players. But again, like when we're talking championship level, like I want like two to three, depending on the position. Like on, uh, the bigger the room, the more guys I want to see, like bona fide, like top of the draft style body types and athletes. And I don't know that Oregon has any position where they're like that, but I think that Oregon has the talent at running back to consider that like that, that group is good enough to play in any type of game you get yourself into. I think the answer to this question is going to be a lot more clear a year from now than it is right now. Um, hundred percent agree. I, I, you know, I, I think, I think in a year, if you ask me this question, I think there's like going to be at least three or four rooms where you can say, yep, we're, we're good enough in that room to win a title. If you, if all the other rooms are doing what they need to do. Right. And I mean, honestly, I, I could project. Oh, well, I, I think our offensive line, it requires a little bit of projection due to the turnover. Right. But I think from what we know of the guys that are playing and, and what we expect from a guy like Josh Connerly, I think, if if the talent across the rest of the the offense is where it needed to be, like I think the offensive line is good enough to win a championship. One hundred percent, I agree with you. And I, again, not to interrupt, but I think I think what you said is exactly right. Like I think what Oregon fans I think need to come to terms with with this team is there are some like there are some splash top end guys in this upper class group right now, but the majority of the high end talent is in the underclass and. In, on this team and that doesn't mean that there's not a lot of really solid very good college players across the board like Dan Lanning what they did this offseason is they went out and acquired a ton of premium young talent and then they supplemented that by filling all the holes with either like very good solid or like elite college level upperclassmen in the portal to fill to fill holes to fill needs and to make this roster solid as a rock like you're going to have to earn it against Oregon at every position this year. There's no, there's no fish in the two deep anymore, but there still isn't that like Bama, Ohio state, Alabama, or Clemson at their peak, um, Georgia right now, caliber room where you just have freaking dudes pouring out of your ears yet. That doesn't mean that you're not way better than everybody else though, that you have on your schedule. doesn't mean you can't be a dominant football team, but you don't just have like dominant athletes everywhere yet. And I think that's where this roster is going to go. So we're, we're basically Notre Dame right now is where we're at, where we're at. No, 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 no. We're, we're better than Notre Dame. Well, I, I, I guess I didn't mean like today's Notre Dame. I met a few years ago when they were making the championship game, but getting smoked by Bama and everybody, cause they weren't 
they weren't there yet. Yeah, or Oklahoma. Like here's the deal. I don't think that we're losing forty eight to three or fifty five to three or whatever the hell we lost to to Georgia last year this year if we played them. But we're still we're not we're not an we're not their equal. We're not their peer yet either, right? Like we are a better football team from top to bottom than we were a year ago. We have way less holes on the roster and we have substantially better depth. But again, to be that like to be a real title contender, to be a team that's actually good enough to really be like, say, hey, we can actually go win it this year. Like you have to have substantially more high-end, top-end guys across your roster than we have right now. I think we have some, but like we that 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 number needs to double or triple, and that's why you recruit the way that Oregon's recruiting this year. Like this class is like way better than anything we've ever been putting together. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Um, it's another roster question. It kind of, you know, feel free to gloss over this because it's kind of somewhat close to some of the stuff we've already talked about. Um, Hales or hates sleeves. I guess he likes tanks. Agree or disagree? It appears to me that CDL and company, Coach Dan Landing and company are trying to maximize and use the full roster space, getting the true field tilters that are difference makers, but also recently players that may have some holes, but a very specific skill set they are good at and will excel in when coaches put them in those positions to succeed. I think it's not just about depth, but taking some of the stress off of their superstars to do everything by bringing in players with specific skills. I think this type of philosophy also works for freshmen when it's a risk to give them too much to think about or work on, but you can give them one thing. Hopefully this makes sense. They are like, if you're a, if you're a transfer player, you need to play a role. And if you're a, a freshman, you need to be toolsy as hell. That doesn't mean that you're going to hit on all of them. It doesn't mean that every kid, especially when you're looking at some of the lower rated kids in the class, like you're not going to hit on all of those guys, but there's going to be an elite underlying trait or two that you're hoping to develop there. And then they're on a clock the moment they get here. It's like you got two or three years to figure it out, bub, or else you're out the door because we're going to bring in two or three more just like you. And some of them are going to hit and we're going to get good players there. But like, we're not just taking scrubs like, there were times under every coach we've had where there's been like five or six guys in the class where it's just like, I'm just wringing my hands. I'm like, these kids are never going to play. The, even with the kids that are on the lower end of this class, the classes we're recruiting right now, there's traits there that are that of the higher quality, like can't miss prospects. They just need to be unlocked in a different way. And so you're take your role in the dice there and hoping that you can get it done. Hoppy, anything to add? Uh, I don't know that there's really anything of value to add there, but no, that's, I mean, that's, I love the point that Andrew makes there just that when these guys get on campus, okay, you probably got a year to really show what you've got. And then you've probably got a second year to either start, you know, cracking into the two deep or more than likely you're probably not going to be there for year three or year four. So I think that's just, it goes with great coaching and guys with, who are honest in their evaluations and honest with these players that say, Hey, look, we're going to keep recruiting at a high level. And you know, that means the guys coming in behind you are going to be really close to you when they get on campus. So if you don't separate yourself, they're going to pass you. And that's what it takes to build a championship program. 
And in to, I, in a today's world with the transfer portal, that's just going to be the nature of the beast. And I mean, people are going to continue saying, oh, they shouldn't process kids. It's mean. It's whatever. No, that's what it takes to win. I, I'll circle back to where I said the expectations are as high as they've ever been on college coaches. So this is a necessary thing for them to do in order to retain their jobs. What are your goals? Like, What are your I, goals as a fan base yeah. and, and, and as a team, right? right? Like if you want to be Utah or Oregon State, like and, and no knock on those teams. Like those those teams know what they are, and their coaches do it really well. But is that is that what Oregon wants to be? Is that what Oregon fans want to be? A team that can win the Pac-12 and and really go no further? Again, we'll see if it ends up happening. But like Oregon is behaving like a team that like is going to have players leaving their roster that would be the best player on Oregon State or Utah. Like that, like that is like, again, that that's like, that is not, that is not going to be the case, right? Like that, but that is the goal. That is the way that they're operating. Like they, you, there is not going to be room. Like again, for the guys that like those teams are developing long term, like they might get a player here or there that's good enough to play for us. But like, ultimately, and again, this is really not Utah because Utah is actually starting to recruit pretty well. But like longer term, that's where this is going. Like. Oregon State should not have a player that would be in our too too deep. They shouldn't, and that's how this roster is being constructed. And so, that's just the that's the way the game's played now. All right, Isle of Dogs says I recently heard someone say that Landing is building Georgia Light in Eugene. What comes to mind is aggressive SEC style recruiting and increased support staff, similar to what Mario was starting, except at a higher level. Why is Oregon running away with recruiting in the Pac-12? Is it a great recruiting staff, a superior NIL program, recruiting to a national brand, any other reasons? Why is the rest of the conference recruiting so poorly? I mean, all, all of it. above, all of that yep. is exactly why. It takes all of it to recruit at this level. You don't, like a lot of fans from other teams just want to blame money. And it's like, it's not just money, buddy. It's like, it has to be all of it. You have to have every single spoke of the wheel to, rec- to have your operation rolling like this. Yeah, I I agree. I do. I mean, yeah, it's easy to pinpoint money, right? Oh, Oregon's just buying everybody. Oregon's, Oregon's in the NIL game, so that's why they're able to compete for some of these five stars. Because let's face it, if Oregon isn't competing for them, Texas is and Tennessee is and Georgia and Alabama, that's what it takes to play the game. But like you said, in order to get there, it takes proper evaluations. It takes relationships that might not be a position coach or a coordinator that has, but maybe one of your graduate assistants or your analyst has a relationship with that, you know, coach at that high school or the guy that trains him in that area or whatever the case might be. All those things matter and factor into it. And you still, at the end of the day, you still got to recruit your ass off. Okay. These guys aren't just necessarily picking up the phone once a month and, and saying, Hey, we have a good, strong NIL and we want some games come play for us. They're still recruiting. They're still doing, still doing all the things behind the scenes um, it just takes that total assembly. So it, it certainly looks to appear. It certainly appears to be much like Georgia and Alabama and the, the way that they've, you know, established their programs, but it's still obviously not there yet. Those guys, it took years to do that. And it takes a massive allocation of money to do that. I think Phil Knight's gotten aggressive. I think Oregon's gotten aggressive and given a lot of resources. Um, it's going to be good enough for them to do continue doing what they're doing on the West Coast in the Pac-12, whatever remains of the Pac-12, and basically cleaning house. 
but we we just talked about it. That's not enough for Oregon. They want to compete with the big dogs. So they're going to keep pushing and keep growing and keep trying to shorten that gap between Alabama and Georgia and Ohio State and themselves. I kind of, you know, I think about every school has kind of a, a natural recruiting ceiling, right? Like, and it's different for everybody. And if you look in this conference, and we'll include the LA schools for now, right? Like, you look at the schools, I think Utah is 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 at their ceiling i mean they're maximizing every everything they can do with their with their particular set of limitations and advantages right and i think you touched on that qb like they've they've gotten to that point i think oregon state is another team that's that's probably pretty close to that point um you know colorado's not but they could easily get there quickly with what dion's trying to do right you look at both the arizona schools are are on the rise uh, they're getting their recruiting. I think they have, they both have coaches now who understand how to recruit. And so I think their recruiting is going to hit their, their kind of natural ceilings, if you will, um, you know, in the next, in the next cycle or two, you know, conversely, look at the programs who aren't hitting what their, what their natural capabilities should be. And quite honestly, it's, Washington, USC, and UCLA. I mean, USC did last year, right? It, on, it, but you still look at like what are they doing in the trenches on the trail? I mean, their their offensive line and defensive line class last year was not great for for USC. Certainly, um, they signed they a they the signed a Willie Taggart class. That's what they did. They signed a Willie Taggart class, which is similar to what they've done the last few cycles, right? Like knock it out of the park and quarterbacks, receivers, and, and DBs and, and, and kind of hide the fact that your, your offensive line and defensive line classes are, are really quite underwhelming, you know, in UCLA, like they've just given up high school recruiting altogether. It's just portal portal city. And then you look at Washington and, and, uh, you know, I, I don't want to, you know, obviously I don't, you know, <laughs> there are rivals and whatever you want to say about Washington, but like, I, I don't, I think if you asked, honest Washington fans and I've talked to some of them who will who will share this with me directly like they're they're not they're not even close to what they should be doing on the on the recruiting trail like I mean they're they hit 25 last year or 30 or whatever it was like I mean they're they can't crack the top 20 with what they're doing they're and it doesn't it doesn't matter like the the top 20 is still so far away from the top 12 to 15 like it's really like that top eight <laughs> That's really got a shot. Yeah, but the point being, they're not even hitting their own ceiling, let alone trying to accelerate into the top ten where they need to be. Right? Like, I mean, they're under they're under recruiting their potential. They definitely are, and and we talked about that. Or, or I mean, I I posted about this earlier on the site. Just that you just kind of look at the direction of Oregon, and and I did use Washington. You look at the direction of Washington. You know, they're happy to take Darren Barkins from Oregon. That's how far we've gotten the guys that Oregon is is recruiting and getting commitments from Washington's barely even mentioned if at all I mean it's just such a a difference and and again USC a top heavy class they got some good players they got some skilled players obviously signed a quarterback they did well there but if you go and look at that roster composition it's not very good and it's not great this cycle so far either so it'll it'll just be interesting to see you know, what this thing looks like in two years, because that's probably about the timeline. All right, next question. Uh, C.S. Smith 25 asks, a selling point we've heard receiving recruits use, namely Gary Bryant Jr., is how Will Stein produced multiple 1,000-yard receivers at UTSA. 
Hopefully, we will see Franklin hit that number this year, but who would be your best bet for also reaching 1,000 yards in 2023? Tez what? Johnson. Tez Johnson, yep. <laughs> I think it's going to be really hard to have two 1,000-yard receivers, especially given how talented our running back room and our running game is. But if there was a second 1,000-yard receiver, I, I agree with you both. It you also have, have to have factor for how the difference in the rule changes in terms of clock are going to affect offenses in general. Yeah. Like there's going to be less production across the board. I mean, I'm not saying you can't have an awesome offense and put up a bunch of points in yards, but it just it's not going to be like as easy to hit those numbers that you were hitting before because there's just going to be less snaps. Yep, good call up. A um, couple of like season questions now, which I think are are really exciting to me. First one: What do you think Oregon's toughest matchup will be next season, and why? What matchup are you most excited for? Uh, Hop, I'll start with you on this one. Uh, Toughest is going to be Washington. They're going to be good. Um, That's going to be a tough game. It's always a tough game. Uh, That's just going to be – you give me Washington. The one I'm most excited for is USC, though. Okay? I I mean, just a lot of bad blood. Um, I know Duck fans are are licking their chops at that one. I'm excited for it. I – would think that if we had Dan Lanning and we were having a, a beer and cigar with him privately and you asked him this question, he would probably say USC uh, as well, just because of all the national spotlight they seem to be getting. So uh, those are my two. Uh, I'll throw one in here, though. Sneaky game that nobody's really talking about is Texas Tech. I think that's going to be a tough game, early game, uh, early season, that is. And, and I just think that that game's not really being talked about enough by Oregon fans. That one has the feel of being kind of sneaky tough as well. Texas Tech is going to make you earn it. USC is the biggest game, though. They're the most talented team. They're the best team that we're going to have to play next year. Um, but that Texas Tech game is going to be an opportunity, and it's going to be a good measuring stick because they're going to be prickly. They're going to be tough. They're going to be competent, but we're also enough better than them that it shouldn't be particularly competitive. And so it's going to be a good like barometer early in the year to see where we're at. Yeah, I mean, I think the game you're most excited for, I mean, it's got to be USC, right? Like, we didn't play them last year. Everybody wanted to see Oregon versus USC last year, or everyone wants to see that the game this year. I don't I don't think there's any question that's the game, the matchup everyone's going to be most excited to watch. Um, as, as far as toughest, you know, I, I think you guys mentioned Washington and, and Texas, you know, Washington, Texas, Texas are both, both good ones there. Obviously, USC is all going to be a tough game. I'll throw out Utah. I, I don't think they're as good of a team as this year. But Rice Eccles is a tough place to play. It's always a tough environment for the for the road team. I mean, I think Oregon needs to go in there and and take care of business. But it, you know they're going to make it tough. I agree. Um, I think that Washington and USC are the two best teams on the schedule, and Washington's on the road. But I think USC is the team that's most capable of beating Oregon if Oregon's having a good day. Like, if Oregon shows up and is playing a good game, I don't think anybody else on the schedule is, like, equipped to beat them. Whereas, just because of Caleb Williams' factor, like, when you have a quarterback that's that elite, you can beat anybody if he's having his best day. All right. I think I got one final question here, uh, kind of along the same lines. T. Sanders, 1099. I wonder if he works in taxes. Outside of Josh Pate, I see a lot of national people overlooking Oregon. I try to remain unbiased and keep expectations in check, but I just feel like this is a playoff team. What is your current outlook on the season? 
QB, start with you. Uh, playoff is going to really come down to like one or two games, right? But I think this is a 10-win team pretty easy. Um, assuming Bo Nix stays healthy. Again, you lose your quarterback, and that changes the outlook quite a bit on everything. But like, assuming that we make it through the season with Bo Nix healthy, this is a 10-win football team or more. And then it really just comes down to like like three games, right? Like you have to win two of the three, Washington at Washington, at Utah, at home against USC. And then you have to win the Pac-12 title if you want to make the playoff. So, I mean, I think Oregon, I think Oregon is capable of making the playoff. I think depending on who else and how things work at quarterback for a certain couple schools out there, um, Oregon could make a run um, and compete maybe before they're like at death star mode, but it's going to be dependent on kind of a couple outcomes and keeping your quarterback in one piece. Um, but yeah, like I think this is a really, really good football team. I think that a lot of people are sleeping on the, the acquisition of the talent. And I think it's because a lot, it's really hard to monitor with the transfer portal, like, and who's actually getting good players and who's not because the transfer portal rankings are trash. And so you just kind of have to get like an actual sample size to see what these teams are made of. Justin. Yeah, there's, there's a playoff team there. Um, there's no secret that you've got to keep Onyx healthy because it goes off the table if, if anything happens there. But I assume that they'll do their best to protect him, and I imagine running will be limited for him this season or as lim- limited as it can be. Boils down to the defense, okay? Defense wasn't great last year. I think they've gotten better players. Um, it's year two, so they should see a jump there. It'll be interesting to kind of see – Perhaps any differences or involvement of Dan Lanning, uh, you know, with Tosh Lupoy to make sure that everything's where it needs to be. I think uh, Coach Hampton was a terrific hire, and I've heard that there's been a lot of optimism about his addition. So I think there's a playoff team there. It boils down to defense, though. Those guys are going to have to be consistent. Um, It obviously always helps when they can get the offense, the ball back. Uh, So turnovers would be a, a great thing for the defense. But I think there's overall there's better talent. It hurts not to have Christian Gonzalez back there anymore, but overall you're better at nearly every other position this year on defense. And I do think that we'll see an unimproved Tosh Lupoy in year two. So I do think this is a playoff team. And it's a and it's a favorable schedule. Yeah, I mean talk about schedules and we covered this when it came out, right? I mean Oregon has certainly out of the contenders has the the most favorable schedule. I mean, obviously the, the, the home road split isn't as favorable having, you know, Utah and UW on the road and USC at home. And I think Washington gets, um, gets two of those three at home and, and USC gets, uh, two of the three at home as well. So it, it, from that standpoint, it's not quite as favorable, but from a like week to week perspective, like, you know, Oregon doesn't have any two weeks. They never have two, tough games in a row, I guess, if you will, right? They always have tough opponent, lower end opponent, tough opponent, lower end opponent. And obviously you got to show up every day and win every game. But but the fact that you don't have that back-to-back stack, you know, like we saw Oregon have last year in November. And conversely, both Washington and USC have stacked Novembers. Um, you know, you go through USC's second half of the season and they play Notre Dame, Oregon, Washington, Utah, and UCLA in in a five out of in a six week stretch they play for those five teams with no breaks. Um, you know UW ends with Oregon, or sorry not Oregon, or UW ends with USC, Oregon State, and um, 
and Utah, I think, three games in a row in November. So Oregon definitely has the most favorable schedule out of the grouping um, from that standpoint. I, you know, one of the things, or two things I'll say about national people overlooking Oregon and just like pundits in general is, firstly, they tend to always be about a year behind in, in seeing the trends of teams, right? You know, you go back, and whether you're talking about people like Wilner or you're talking about national guys, they they tend to always be about a year late in predicting a team is going to rise, and they tend to be about a year late in predicting a team is going to have a drop-off. And, and, and that's been pretty consistent over the last decade or so in my experience. And I think part of that is due to the fact that they're not – they can't. They can't follow – 65 teams with enough in, in depth to really understand like the ins and outs and the talent, you know, the, the things that you talked about QB, like who's got, who's actually improved their roster, right? Like what are the actual holes and not just the like narrative holes that, you know, they read somebody else tweet about. Right. And, and especially when you get to the West coast, because most of these guys, honestly, they're not following the PAC 12 that closely, right? They follow the sec, they follow the big 10, maybe the Atlantic coast, maybe the big 12. And then, Every once in a while, every every month or so, they're like, I guess we better do a podcast or write a story about the Pac-12, and they, they spend a couple hours doing some high-level research, and they, you know, come out with some cookie-cutter kind of, like, in my opinion, pretty lazy takes, and we've, you know, we've seen some of those over the last month or so, and, and I think that's probably part of the reason why... Like, everyone's just rubber-stamping Utah. It's like, oh, you can't overlook Utah. They won twice in a row. Well... Okay, like they were the fourth best team in the conference last season. Yeah, they won it, but they they weren't the best team in the Pac-12. They weren't even the second best team in the Pac-12. I'd argue they weren't even the third best team in the Pac-12. Um, and and, and what have they done in the off season compared to what some of the other contenders have done, right? And and you know it, you when you read an article where someone talks about, oh no, Oregon's got to re- reload the offensive line. It's going to be a real problem. And then a sentence later, they're like. Washington brings back everybody from a high-powered offense. Um, you know, they're losing three offensive line starters too, right? Like, I mean, it's just the, the the inconsistency within their own research and, and takes is is kind of jarring, right? And that's just one example you know, down the list of that. So I don't really care what these national pundits say because they, they just don't, they're not, they're not proven to be that accurate. You know, look at what all the analytics models say, every one of them. Has Oregon as the second is USC and Oregon as a clear one two, with some order of Washington, UCLA, Utah as as the next three, right? With a little bit of a gap behind Oregon and and USC. Every analytics model says that. Vegas, what do they what do the over unders say? Win total over unders. They all have Oregon Oregon and USC at nine and a half, and and the next grouping at eight and a half. Every you know all the preseason prediction models have Oregon as the second. Second favorite, you know, the the odds to win the Pac-12 title. It's all Oregon. So the people who actually do this stuff for a living and have real major money on the line all have Oregon and USC as the top two. So do you, do you put more faith in that, or do you put more faith in some guy who has a big following and checks in on the Pac-12 once a month and declares Utah and Washington are going to run away with it because they're the popular picks of the day? Uh, and not to mention... Well, and, 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 and super quick for me, no, good point. But, you know, last thing is look at the preseason rankings every year, the preseason polls that come out, and you've always got Texas in the top 10, and you've always got Notre Dame in the top 10 and LSU in the top 10, and they're they're out by week two. You know what I mean? So 
again, how close of, a, of attention are they really paying? And, and if you're Oregon, you know, to their credit, there's no reason to let the secret out, right? There's no reason to be like, oh, yeah, you guys are sleeping on us. Just wait. It's going to be like, nope, we'll just stay quiet and let them all count us out because that's the best thing for Oregon. So, um, no, love your points, but wanted to add that too. Yeah, just real quick, I didn't answer the question about my prediction. Um, I think I think a playoff. It's a playoff. It's a, it's a team that can make the playoffs. I think the the more likely scenario is the Pac-12 self cannibalizes like they do annually, um, and and the loser has the winner of the conference has two losses. Um, it doesn't mean it can't be a successful season. I think it's the my expectation is you have to be playing in Vegas for the Pac-12 title game. If Oregon doesn't make it to that game, it's not been a successful season. I just there's no there's I can't equivocate about that at all outside of like you said some Bo Nix injury or some something like that right if your team remains the health that you need to have and you don't make it to the Pac-12 title game it's 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 not acceptable this team is playoff capable like they're capable of getting there um and I think I agree with you like my expectation is they absolutely need to be in Vegas um and I think again like they need to win two out of those three like at Washington, at Utah, and USC, those need to be like you need to win two out of those three. If you go three out of three, it's unbelievable, and you can't drop games to teams that you're way freaking better than. And Oregon is way freaking better than everybody else on the schedule. Like those are the three teams that should be able to push you if they're like if those teams show up and are having their good day, and maybe you're not at your best. And I think USC is the team that can push you regardless of if you're at your best. And so, like, those are the games to me that, like, I'm going to evaluate this season off those three games. It's stupid to say, oh, well, Oregon's just going to win everything else. Like, they have to play those games. They have to earn it. But, like, if Oregon is losing those other games, then, like, this is a failed season. Yeah, I mean, you know, if any of you follow Kelly Ford, you know, he has a, he has a model, analytics model. He came out with his updated um, you know, kind of his win percentages for each game of the season, right? And and among other things, a great model if you go follow him on Twitter. But he does a lot of a lot of work that goes into this. But you know, eight of Oregon's twelve games, Oregon is a seventy nine percent or better favorite in. Like that's you can't lose any of those eight. Like that's an overwhelming favorite, right? I mean, those eight have to be automatic. You have to go out and take care of business, put those to bed, and even when you don't, you know even when you're not playing your best game, you're not going to come out and play your best game for all eight of those. Nobody does. Like That's fine. But when one of those teams makes a run at you and you're not playing your best, you still got to put your foot down and put the game away because that's what elite teams do, right? And if you want to be in that conversation, that's what you got to do. You got to take care, take care of business in those eight. And then you got Texas Tech as a 67% you know, win percentage. That's still a game. Look, I know it's a tough environment. I know it's on the road. I know Texas Tech is going to be motivated. I know they're a good team. I'm not saying they're not, but Oregon has to win that game. You can't be the team that's like, oh, we lost to Texas Tech, like, and 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 still be the team that think that you want to be and that Dan wants to be and that everyone thinks you should be. Like, you just, it's not, it's not, it's not Auburn 2010. It's not LSU 2011. It's not Ohio State. It's not Georgia. Like, it's Texas Tech. And taking nothing away from them, but like if you're truly, you know, the team that you think you are with a top ten roster and great coaching and and all this future ahead of you, you gotta win that freaking game. You have to. And so yeah, it comes down to those three games, and you gotta win two out of those three. That's, that's the end of it. I mean, 
Whoever wins two out of those three is going to be in the conference title game. And, and if you win one, you aren't. Especially, like, UCLA might actually backdoor their way into the Pac-12 title game. <clears throat> like, if you look at their schedule, like, they could, like, I don't know. I was having a hard time finding two losses on UCLA's schedule. I, I totally agree with you, and I think I've said this a couple times, and, and Hop had to jump, so thanks, Hop, for joining us, and, and we're about to wrap up here, too, for the rest of the listeners. We're we're going strong at an hour 36 now, but, um, it, uh, you know, and I, I think I've said this, too, right? Like, UCLA, because of their schedule and because of the way I think you and I both agree that, that they're flying under the radar in this conference big time, more so than Oregon, and, and because of that and because of the fact that Utah, UW, Oregon and Washington all play a full round robin. Like UCLA has a very, very I, 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 likely might be too strong of a word, but a very doable, achievable path to get one of those two spots in the Pac-12 title game and let let those other four kind of like beat each other up to see who gets the second spot. Absolutely. Like UCLA can't lose stupid games, but if they split Utah and USC, they. I think they're in that game. Yeah, yeah I think they are too. It's, well, uh, let's just say, assuming they beat Oregon State, I think that's the other one on their schedule, right? Like, Because I wouldn't say that's a stupid loss, right? Like, I think using, losing to other teams on their schedule would be a stupid loss. I don't think losing to Oregon State would be like a stupid loss. It would be, it would be a disappointing loss. Um, but Oregon State's a team that's capable of beating UCLA. Um, and so that's a game where, assuming they win that, if they can split the the USC and, and Utah games, then yeah, they're playing in Vegas, and 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 then you know, you absolutely have to win at least two of those three if you're Oregon or UW or USC. And guess what? You know they all three can't or Utah, right? I mean, you might but have that, to win all three. UCLA also has to avoid losing to one of the bottom three in that division too. And, like, they are a team that is completely capable of just showing up and losing to Arizona or Arizona State or Colorado. That's also a problem with them, and that has been a problem with them. Yeah, you look at last year. I mean, they, they had everything, even late in the season, they had all their goals in front of them, and they dropped that. Was it Arizona or Arizona State? One of those two. They just, like... I believe it was Arizona. Yeah, they totally just really didn't play well at all and got their yeah. butt handed to them. 100%. Uh, QB, I know uh, we've been going strong. I think we're out of questions. Any final thoughts you want to you have for this episode? No, I loved this question session, though. These were like actual football questions and awesome. So thanks to those who wrote in and um, keep that up. That was pretty sweet. Ooh, we do have one more. We get one more. Let's do it. All right. Last question. Uh, Tyler Wright, 52. Which of the players that transferred out of Oregon do you see having the most success at their new school? Oh, um, I guess it depends how you determine success. I think that, like, I think that uh, Maliki Matavao and Byron Cardwell are probably like the guys that are gonna have the biggest roles. <clears throat> so I think I'd probably go those two. Maybe Dante Thorne. We'll see. Yeah, Maliki was my number one on this one for the same reason. I think he's obviously going to have a big role, I think, and Chip likes to throw to the tight end. So I could see him getting a lot of usage and, and having a really successful season down there, which I think would be great. I think, you know, he's a great player and he deserves it. I, I You know, Thornton's kind of a wild card. He ab- I could absolutely see him, you know, having one of those years where he, you know, pulls in seven or eight touchdowns and has 
700 yards or something, which would which would be a great season. You know, and, and Tennessee's a team that's going to throw the ball around, so it's certainly certainly in the cards. I mean, Cardwell is an interesting one to me because man, they've added a ton of backs. I mean, they got Jade Knott, they got Cardwell, they just brought in another transfer this week. So I, I you know I don't know if Cal's going to run the wishbone or something, but. Um, it'll be interesting to see what his role ends up being there, whether he has enough opportunity to, to have that like monster season. I think when you go on the other side of the ball, I think there's guys, that, you know, my one of my one of the challenges I've always hated about people evaluating or ranking or determining success with defensive players and particularly linebackers is they talk about tackles. And, and I feel like tackles is, without context, is a completely overrated and, quite frankly, sometimes meaningless stat, right? Like, there's there's teams that play defensive systems that just, like Cal used to be this way, right? Like, they just funnel tackles to their middle linebacker, right? So the guy would always lead the conference in tackles, but is he actually, like, a plus player, right? Uh, you know, and I think there's, so I think you look at a guy like Keith Brown going to Louisville, like he could, he could, and I think he, I think he could have a really good season there. I'm not saying that, uh, you know, even a guy like Justin Flo going to Arizona, you know, maybe he racks up a lot of tackles and maybe has a lot of success there. And I think I would only caution Oregon fans to say, just because that happens doesn't mean a, that like you can rack up a lot of tackles. It doesn't mean you're, you're a plus player at, at the linebacker position and B, it doesn't mean you would have done that at Oregon had you stayed, right? Different system, different expectations, different roles and responsibilities, and different depth chart. I mean, so it's the old Scooby Wright syndrome. <clears throat> Everyone said that Scooby Wright was this, like, oh, he's such an awesome player. Like, people had him in the freaking first round of mock drafts, for crying out loud. And that guy stunk. But he got a lot of tackles, and then he was an undrafted free agent that I think lasted about five minutes at a camp in the NFL. So... Again, yeah, but was Ben Burkhurvin, wasn't he another one out of UW that was in that same I role? mean, he was at least good enough to get drafted. What was the what was the Cal linebacker who racked Evan Weaver? Oops, actually muted. Yeah, Evan Weaver as well. Um there's been a lot of guys like that. It's like again, like production doesn't equal always equal equal being good. Um and so that's why I said it depends like how you value production, like who's going to be the best player. Like I think that those three guys on offense are the most talented players that left Oregon. I think they're the guys that would have had the highest chance of having a role. I mean, Montevale absolutely would have had a role. Um, it had, they stayed. Um, and so I think those are the three easy picks, but like, I think that like Cam McCormick will do a good job at Miami as an inline blocker. Um, but and then there's some guys that could go down a level, like the guys that are going to Nevada. Like you could see one of those guys become a better player too. Yeah, and I think I think the especially when you're talking about going down a level, you know, or even going down to a team that's at the bottom, you know, of Power Five from a from a competitive standpoint. Like, you know, that you know, again, I go back to saying like it doesn't mean it was a bad move for Oregon if somebody goes. To Nevada and has a thousand yards, or somebody you know goes to, you know to Cal or Arizona and racks up a bunch of stats. Like it doesn't mean oh no, Oregon shouldn't have let them go. Like they wouldn't have done that here. Yeah, I think like, Sean they, Dollars at Nevada is a good example of that. Oh yeah, yeah, great example. Yeah, I think he'll be super productive there. I think it's a great fit. I think it's the right spot for him. And like I, I again, I, I wish none of these kids anything but the best. Even Darren Barkins, like I don't know, it's just not quite there for us. 
Yeah, well, Julio Tucker going to San Diego State and and at receiver now instead of instead of DB. Like, I mean, you know, that maybe that's a better positional fit for him at a at a level of football where he can be successful. So, you know, hope he does. I hope he, you know, like I I love nothing more than watching. Uh, what were those two guys? One was a DB and one was a receiver. Like uh, David Davis, right? Like rack up a bunch of a bunch of stats at Western Kentucky and and really just score a bunch of touchdowns, get a bunch of yards, and and ultimately I think I don't know if he got drafted, but he was a, a free agent signing or something in the NFL. Like that's an awesome story. Like I love that guy. I loved him when he was at Oregon for the way what a team player he was. But then when he moves on, you're like, God, I hope he goes and and kills it at Western Kentucky, and he did. Yeah. Again, like I think that. <clears throat> again, like with, with the level that Oregon's recruiting at at this point, like there's going to be guys that leave who are going to go have good careers other places. And that's just part of it. So you can't keep them all. I, I talked about this before you got on QB. Like I, I think defensive line and edge is the perfect example of this, right? Like we brought in 10 freshmen in the 23 class at those two positions. We're probably going to be close to that number in the 24 class. Guess what? They're not all going to play here. Right. I mean, you know, you, you take the top 50 percent, you know, that end up developing and, and beating out the other 50 percent. And then those other guys, they might be really still really good players that go and, and have productive careers at other places. And that's OK. Like you're still getting the, the top half of that group to stay. Like Keanu Williams is probably going to play an absolute crap ton of snaps at UCLA. Yeah. That's a good call. Yeah, it's another one we didn't think of before. Yeah, so like, <clears throat> it'll be. It's it'll... just a new world. I think our fans and and West Coast fans in general have to adapt to. Yeah, I mean, just getting comfortable with the fact that guys are going to leave, and especially with the way Oregon's starting to recruit now. Like, and as this roster matures, like the better the roster gets to the top, the better the player that transfers out is going to be. Well said. All right. We are at a, an hour 45. That's two episodes in a row where we're bringing our listeners 100 minutes of hot Oregon Duck off-season football talk. That's uh, that's pretty good for us. It is. The listener questions have helped because I think the, the last two weeks in a row we've gotten some really good questions. So thank you all for that. Yeah, awesome. And, uh, again, Doug, like, good to be able to get at least for a portion of today's like podcast to get all three of us on here well done sir yeah no that was nice i'm glad it was able to work out we, we started with me and hop you joined and then he had to drop off so but it was good to have have the crossover and it makes my job in editing a little bit easier so thanks for that all right we'll uh we'll wrap it up here we'll be back next week with another another episode and uh we'll be working on some cool stories to, to cover there i think the recruiting is going to kind of slow down for a while so we'll probably be a little less focused on that and a little more on, on kind of some cool off-season stuff that we've kind of been hinting at and maybe some guests yep i'm looking forward to it all right thanks all take care